We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. Coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV. And you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code DACE. All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy-to-prepare food. Order today, 888-457-3453, 888-457-3453, or go online at preparewithcr.com. That's preparewithcr.com. Build your emergency food supply for only $99. Limit two units per caller, 888-457-3453, or online at preparewithcr.com. That's 888-457-3453, or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Thursday here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. We love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Coming up later on in this hour, you know, we're hearing a lot of talk. Democrats are going to block this nomination. Democrats are going to gum up the works on Trump's uh, judicial appointees. Can they really do that? They're in the minority in both houses. Of course, the Senate primarily takes the, uh, the, the, the point when it comes to confirmations. But, but can they really do the stuff that the media is describing, right? Like we saw some in the media misleading Americans that, uh, Barack Obama could recess appoint Merrick Garland to the U.S. Supreme Court. No, he can't, right? So is this fake news again? Or are there parliamentary procedures by which they could attempt to nullify, at least partially, the election results in November by slowing down Trump's ability to stack the executive branch and and the judicial branch, for that matter, with his appointments. We're going to talk to somebody who spends a lot of time on Capitol Hill testifying uh, and also strategizing. We're going to get answers to those questions because I think a lot of this is astroturf. 
I think a lot of this is fake bluster posturing to raise money off of clickbait, gullible leftists like Jill Stein's recounts a couple of weeks ago. But, but maybe I'm wrong. So we're going to get some answers to, that, to those questions coming up later in this hour. But there's a ton of stuff going on tonight, gentlemen. But I, I want to begin by going off the books a little bit tonight because I, I am concerned. And, and, and I think that we need to issue, and, and this doesn't happen very often. But when there is a when when the dude code issues a code red, that means a culture is at an existential tipping point. And and, and I fear that we are approaching one. And I, I don't want to be one of those guys. I don't. I'm gonna try my best, right? You know, I'm 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 noticing now that I'm, I'm repeating my anecdotes and stories. The stuff that used to annoy me 10, 15 years ago, I've noticed I'm now doing it. Right? I'm, I'm, this morning, my, my oldest daughter fired up something on Pandora that I just thought sounded like crap. And I looked at her and I said, what in the Sam Hill is that? And... It's. I sounded like I was seventy when I said it. Okay. Old man shakes fist at cloud. <laughs> yes. Were you sitting in a rocking chair when you said that? No, I was standing up, up, upright actually. Okay. But that's next. That is next. Okay, I'm. I'm trying. It, some of it's unavoidable. That is the way of things. We, if we live long enough, right? We either die the hero or live long enough to see ourselves become the villain, right? We, so the some of the curmudgeon, curmudgeonness is unavoidable the longer we live. And I'm, I'm trying not to, if the next generation doesn't want to do everything the way we do it, then they're terrible. Because every generation, you know, Rush used to say this for years, every older generation thinks the next generation is going to be the undoing of life as we know it. Everybody thought that. And you know, Todd, you and I are Gen X. And our generation perfected the art of 40-some-odd-year-old men or older Playing video games at night. I do it. It's one of my wind downs after the show. When everybody's asleep, keeps me out of trouble, helps me to wind down. You know, I mean, we were sort of the slacker generation. It was odd. My oldest daughter was playing some contemporary music that I just thought was wretched. But she did it while wearing, get this, a flannel shirt with her Nirvana t-shirt underneath. That and, and the flannel shirt was opened. And I'm like, where did you get my college uniform because that's how we all dressed i mean everybody had a stone temple pilots pearl jam and nirvana shirt underneath their open flannel as part of their orientation packet when you went to college in the 90s right and she knows like one song from nirvana she just thinks the t-shirt is cool okay you know so we kind of invented the grunge slacker thing you know we've got our own issues we we were the ones that first bought the farm on political correctness it came out of our era uh, when we were on college campuses, and now we've passed it on. So every generation has its afflictions. Every generation, every era has its blind spots. Can we stipulate to those things? Sure. Every generation has the things that it must wrestle with so that it doesn't become that cliche. The generation that will be the undoing of us all. Every generation faces that. We all agree that we all stipulate to that, too, to some degree. Yes, all right. we must. Every generation faces its moral crisis moment, its stand and deliver moment, right? Every generation faces that. For our generation, Todd, it'd be 9-11. For, the, for our parents' generation, it would have been um, the counterculture. For their parents' generation, it would have been the depression in Pearl Harbor, right? I mean, every, every era has the things that are unique to it. 
both good and bad. Obstacles, Rubicons it must cross, ties it must bind or unbind, moral crises that it must stand up to. We all face this. So, Aaron, this is a really long disclaimer because I, I, I sincerely want to have a real conversation about this, not snarky, even though it may be unavoidable given the subject matter to some degree. Mm-hmm. But my intent here is not to look down my nose at your generation. Understood. I'm trying to lend a hand up, Jesse Jackson, not a hand out, okay? Is this about Year of the Cat? No, it's not about Year of the Cat. As disturbing as that was... My hope is that never gets referenced on this show ever again. I read a piece while I was on vacation at National Review. And it just made me want to face palm for humanity. I, 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 I was struggling to process it. Struggling to understand how do you get here? And, and why would I pay an ungodly sum of money to send my own children to be subjected to this? Or to have them have six figures of student loan debt that they probably won't have to pay off, actually, like we will. But you, but you catch my drift. Why would, why would we subject the next generation to this? And unless, they, they, unless we have kids that, that want to be doctors or lawyers, something that requires a certain level of academic proficiency that that you have to be accredited in those areas but if that's not what they're going to be if they're going to be computer programmers if they're going to be mechanics then 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 they don't need a liberal arts degree they don't need to be subjected to this and go get them training so they can get right in the workforce and start making a living with whatever you know skilled labor they want to do right because something smells rotten in the state of Denmark i you know, you read the you read the stuff we're going to talk about here in a moment over the course of a year, and you you read one of these stories one week, and then a couple weeks later another one comes up, and Aaron will bring one up a week later on this week's sign of the apocalypse, and it's funny, snarky, and depressing, but when you see them all compiled into one ledger, it makes you want to weep for the future of your society, and and I don't know how much of this is our fault. For doing this to you guys? I don't know how much of it is your fault for letting us do it. There's certainly enough blame to go around. You know, I think when kids are little, it's always learned behavior. So you always blame the parents. But now we're talking about adults now, right? I posted this on Facebook a few days ago. This is a compilation from National Review. The headline is the 16 most ridiculous PC moments on college campuses in 2016. Now, if this had happened over the course of 5 to 10 years, this would be tragic. I I mean, tragic. This is, get him a body bag, Johnny. I mean, finish him. Okay, this is, this is, we, (laughs) this is your culture went to Cobra Kai Dojo and got its butt kicked. That's what this is. But when it all happens in one year, in one year. And what did they leave on the cutting room floor, Exactly. Mm-hmm. What did they say no to to get it to 16? This happened in one year. I'm sorry that we have done this to you. I, I, I am sorry that we have allowed this to happen to you. 
Because what we're talking about here transcends politics, transcends your view of what the Establishment Clause of the Constitution means or the General Welfare Clause, or are we a democracy or a republic? Those are views and opinions reasonable people can have even strident disagreement on and be mature, well-adjusted adults that can function on their own in some semblance of a free society. What, what is in this article, however, doesn't make whatever your viewpoints are, doesn't make that possible. Doesn't make it possible for us to, if we hand you the baton and say, now you take over the company. You, you take over the show. You take over the government. You take over the family business. You're not, you go have a family. You can't do that in, in, if this is who you are. I want to talk about some of these examples when we come back. Listening to Steve Dace. Most of what we say is illegal in Europe. Get the truth while you still can. Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So let's take a look at this list. 16 things that happened on college campuses this year. A college had to provide counseling and a safe space because some students were so upset that a couple of their classmates were drinking tequila and wearing sombreros at the same time. This was at Bodine College. Somebody threw a tequila-themed party. And that supposedly was racist. Don't they know that's the definition of college? At least it was when I was there. Liquor theme parties. Number two, students created a healing space to recover from a speech that they didn't even attend. This happened at UCLA. Students created a healing space to recover from the pain of having Ben Shapiro speak on their campus. Even though the speech had happened three months ago i'm no longer surprised by any of this if if steve if you or i were to be accepted into these colleges as the 22 year old men that we were 18 year old men i don't think we could get through four years without being expelled i think that would be impossible these days three months later three months later after he spoke three months later what did shapiro do there Slaughter a goat to Dermama? What did he do there? Three months later, you're still triggered? It's, it's like gender. It can come and go whenever, Steve. Number three, an academic article written by an assistant professor at some place called Memorial University claimed that ski slopes are sexist because they are masculinized spaces. I ski quite frequently. Aaron, you skied for the first time. Did you feel oppressed? By in any um, way, did you sense no, oppression? I, I actually felt like I was the oppressor. Um, I mean, <laughs> let's let's get that right. No. I mean, this is. I, I just. I don't. I don't want to know how you get to that frame of mind. I just. I don't. There is some good news. I think that I'll probably share towards the end of this conversation. But I just. I don't know how you get. How, how you let yourself go there. Number four: the war on Harambe. 
this this girl became a, a stupid internet meme. Red, RAs at the University of Massachusetts warned students that quote any negative remarks regarding Harambe were direct attacks on our campus's African American community. Who's the See, racist? Yeah, I was. Oh, you took the words right out of my mouth. So they're gonna. They're positing racial racial stereotypes now. We we have to become racist to stop racism. Is that what we're doing? Clemson University banned any reference to Harambe from dorm spaces over concerns over race and racism and rape culture. That's enough to get me to root for Alabama. Florida State University was concerned that Harambe Halloween costumes were called were quote cultural appropriation. Again. The, the implied racism there on their behalf is is appalling. Yeah, here, listen. If you looked at Harambe the gorilla and saw a caricature of of a, of a human being of black skin pigment, that's a statement about your level of racial uh, stereo, stereo, stereotypes and 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 racism that you're carrying around. If that's where you're at. If that's what you, if you saw that and started connecting those dots on your own, you're the problem. I got my issues with Donald Trump. It's like when people, it's like Hollywood stars saying he's a fascist. Pretty good rule of thumb. If you can call the person in power a fascist publicly, he's He's probably not not one. Okay? You know who you can't publicly call a fascist when they're in power? Fascists! Nimrods. Come on. Number five. A Harvard kid declared benches to be a racial issue. Actual benches, as in the things people sit on in the parks. Number six. According to an an op-ed written by a student at Cal Berkeley, privilege checking is also problematic because it just makes privileged people feel lucky. So now, to even acknowledge that you have your privileges and to attempt to check them to be politically correct makes you a product of those privileges as well. You, if, you, if, you, if you don't acknowledge your privileges, you're a racist. And if you do, you're a racist. And if you do, and then try to not acknowledge them by doing something about them, you're also a racist, in case you were wondering. You know, if, in case you're wondering, I think the most loving thing, really, and, and I, I use that word, in the, and I'm not, I, I've got a straight face here, and I'm not trying to be, uh, funny with this. The most loving thing we can do for these millennials, uh, these college-age people, is to laugh at them and to scorn them. Because you know what? You know what I was thinking? What's that? A daddy takes his belt off, puts you over his knee. Life is going to do that to them and, at some and point. And looks at you and says, son, I know you don't understand this now, but this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And right now, it's going to hurt you a lot. Because that's the good news. At some point... These people are going to have to be out on their own. I mean, yeah, maybe the government dole. Uh, maybe they'll be on the government dole uh, until the, the day they that, die. We'll get, we're going to get to that in a moment. Okay. Because okay? I think the goal is that for them not to be out on their own. Right. Number seven, the University of Oregon debated removing a Martin Luther King Jr. quote because, quote, it wasn't inclusive enough, unquote. Yeah, well, what so kind Martin of street cred does he have, Mar- you know? He's a racist now. MLK is a racist now. A professor worried that her school's hawk mascot... It was so scary looking that it might it might be making students incredibly emotionally distressed. This is Resmeye Oral. She is a professor at the University of Iowa, and she was concerned that the Herky mascot could be emotionally distressing to students. Those scary teeth. Number nine. 
Materials distributed by the University of Missouri declared that it is a microaggression to call a disabled person inspiring. So now compliments are mean. Number 10, a student was hit with a safe space complaint for raising her hand because the school's safe space policy strictly forbade, quote, hand gestures which denote disagreement, unquote. Number 11, the University of Iowa, again, put a trigger warning on, ca- on a campus crime alert about a peeping Tom on the loose because apparently maintaining a metaphorical safe space is more important than making sure students know about the threat to their actual safety in the first place. You're in danger, but we don't want to tell you because it might offend you. What are we to do? A football coach at Cornell University apologized for posting a photo of some of his players wearing sombreros because sombreros are considered, quote, extremely offensive language, end quote. Number 13, Southwestern University in Texas canceled the vagina monologues because they found out a white lady wrote it. Number 14, a college outdoor club canceled an event over concerns. It was not inclusive enough to people who do not like to go outdoors. This is at Claremont College, which canceled its annual bikini hike because there are people that don't want to go outside, and that's not inclusive enough. Number 15, a professor was accused of sexual harassment for saying that that effort would count for 10% of the grade in his class. Effort. Saying that effort. If you give maximum effort, you get that's 10% of your grade. And he was charged with sexual harassment. This was at Brooklyn College of New York. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. You can agree with him, or you can be wrong. It's a free country. Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. I don't know, Aaron, how your generation... And maybe you subconsciously know this, which is why your birth rate is so low in your generation, why the amount of men who put off or even just decide altogether not to get married or have kids in your generation is at a chronic level, the amount of women having, uh, not having children or having them out of wedlock is at a chronic level. It's almost as if subconsciously you acknowledge you're completely and 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 perhaps irrevocably screwed as a generation by by denying yourselves responsibility. I know a lot of people look at that as slackerism. I, I I'm sure that's part of it, but I I also wonder if some of it is almost a subconscious acknowledgement that we have no business stewarding any other live human being or any other enterprise based off of examples of of what's been done to us as we just laid out here a few minutes ago i don't think it's subconscious steve i think it's very conscious i've heard that uh, and i've I've seen that expressed on numerous millennial centered uh websites more and more frequent frequently that uh, yes there is some sort of admission that we are all 
uh, expletive up. We don't want to bring anybody else into this world because we know it's so messed up. And that's I think that's probably the overwhelming urge. But at the same time, this is just, again, I don't want to know how you let yourself or you let someone around you get into the frame of mind to thinking that if you give, if your professor says, if you give some effort, that's somehow sexual harassment or sexual assault or something like that. I don't, I don't want to know how you get to that, that, that time. But I think the good news, and it's not very good news for those who are um, snowflakes, as we like to call them, or as Todd has aptly put it before, actual bullies. The good news is that I think at some point, Life is going to slap these people around. I mean, it's like the the, the first uh, week that's training camp in football, and I remember going through that in high school, and that is a wake-up call to say, oh, wow, I'm not in shape. I'm not all that. I need to get with it. Someday these kids, I think, are going to go through that, and maybe, maybe they'll realize just how far gone they actually are. I don't have a whole lot of confidence in that, being that they're so reliant on government, they're so reliant on so-called authority figures to get whatever they want or make them feel whatever they want or make other people feel the way that they want them to. I'm not confident in that at all, but maybe that's maybe that's some hope here. Two things I want to say, or two groups of people in your generation I want to address. Those of you that are well-adjusted, that were raised the right way, you are going to own this place. And I mean own it. It reminds me of when we were kids and Northwestern was terrible in sports and everything and their fans used to chant in their student section, hey, hey, it's okay. You're going to work for us one day. That was how they consoled themselves after getting blown out, lost, defeated again. I mean, thank your parents. Thank your teachers. Um, thank the people in your life that raised you to be well-adjusted adults. Because because with, with this gene pool, you're running the joint. Pretty quickly. Pretty quickly, probably, indeed. Because the real world doesn't work like this, even amongst leftists. It, it's not that it doesn't, it's that it can't. It can't. That's exactly... I mean, Bernie Sanders can tell you all he wants about income inequality. Dude still wants to own three homes. And the money for those three homes, the mortgages, aren't going to pay themselves, baby. You know what I'm trying to say? Okay, so, I mean, Hillary Clinton didn't... Hillary Clinton didn't burp in front of a corporate gathering for less than a quarter mil, brah. Okay? This is not how the real world operates despite all the social justice warrior language. To us, to the other group, that you'd like to take the next few steps into adulthood, but you are concerned that you are not ready. Here's my counsel to you. As someone who's, um, whose maturity level developed much later in life and, and tried in my pre-conversion days, to live a prolonged adolescence, the likes of which much of your generation is living. Get busy living or get busy dying. You want to know how you get prepared? Just go and do it. Just go be an adult. Go get a job. Go get married. Go have a kid. Go take a risk. Put yourself in a position where you have to take responsibility for yourself or something other and or something other than yourself. That's the best preparation there is. Because the longer you sit on the outside of adulthood, just sort of preening in and looking at it, the less likely you will one day be prepared to embrace it. So you know what I would do? It's how we used to teach kids to swim back in the day before everybody was triggered. What did we do, Todd? 
<laughs> just throw them in we the pool. Throw them in because sooner or later the survival instinct will take over, right? Exactly. You're listening to Steve Dace. Ever exceeding your low expectations, The Steve Day Show. All right, back here on The Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review, here on the Salem Radio Network. So a lot of bluster from Democrats on Capitol Hill about stalling Trump's nominations, uh, putting uh, putting up uh, measures and stop gaps uh, to avoid his judicial nominations from getting the necessary uh, votes to be confirmed as well. How much of this is legit? How much of this is posturing? Let's ask Carrie Severino. Uh, she's with the Judicial Crisis Network, and she's somebody that has done a ton of work on Capitol Hill and knows the player. So we want to welcome her to the show tonight. How are you, Carrie? Hey, great. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Carrie. So tell our audience, let's just start there right from the top. How much of this is political posturing, the Democrat version of, you know, some of the fake Tea Party astroturf groups we have on the right that do clickbait fundraising for the gullible? They have this on the left, too, like Jill Stein's fake recounts and things of that nature. So how much of this bluster is just posturing for a base and how much of this is something that they can actually pull off? Oh, it's none of it is something they can actually pull off if you're talking about stopping the nomination. So uh, to that extent, this is 100% possible, and it's actually fundraising efforts, as you mentioned. I mean, for example, in the case of Senator Sessions, the NAACP just staged some sit-ins at his Alabama offices. They staged five of these in the local offices. Four, as soon as the press left, the sit-in ended. They left. So, you know, it's, it's all to get the press there. The fifth one... They insisted on staying until the building closed, at which point the police had to come to take them away. And then within hours of being arrested, they're sending a fundraising letter saying, hey, I was arrested in Senator Sessions' office. You know, send money to moveon.org. Yeah. This is this is what that kind of thing is about. They're trying to drum up the base. Uh, it, it, it's really just a fundraising gimmick. And um, it, because of the way the Senate rules are now, with 51 votes, we can confirm these nominees. And you know what? There's 52 Republican votes, and we already have bipartisan support as well. People like Senator Manchin from West Virginia have already said, even though he's a Democrat, he's going to vote for Sessions. There's going to be a lot more of those people coming. So uh, I think there's going to be no problem getting these people confirmed at the end of the day. They're just trying to cause as much political damage as they can in the, po- in the, po- in the process, maybe scare off other good potential nominees. So this is like last year's sit-in that they had in Congress, which ended with them having their own lunch catered in. Yeah, yeah. Well, then the same thing happened at Sessions' office, actually. It's funny. They, they, the Sessions staffers were very kind. They sent them pizza. They sent uh, they sent them soft drinks. They sent them Krispy Kreme donuts. I mean, it's it's really, uh, you know, it's it's not exactly the same as the, as the lunch counter days. Uh, these, this, is, this is sort of cushy sit-in. Um, but I think it's also discouraging because, you know, this is not what our country needs right now. We need to kind of rebuild a national... Uh, coalition here of people trying to get things together. And the senators, the Democratic senators who are part of the group complaining about Senator Sessions, they know this man. They have worked with him for some as many as two decades. And um, they know he's, uh, that, he, that all of these things they're saying are totally untrue. You have a lot of people who have worked with him who are on the other side politically, um, and certainly in Alabama politicians, who are saying, you know what, I don't agree with Jeff Sessions, but I know he's not a racist. He's a really good and upstanding man. He has 
what's best for Alabama, what's best for America at heart. And I hope that the Senate Democrats are, are willing to acknowledge at the end of the day that they know these things, too, um, because it's, it's a shame to have someone who's such a good man, such a longstanding public servant, um, have people trying to drag his name through the mud. You know what you're describing, Carrie, when when they when when their when their henchmen in the media are no longer allowed or permitted to determine or dominate uh, the narrative uh, on these issues. And we, we saw this in Texas in the pro-life battle there around. Uh, you know, the throwing the tampons and the feces and the stuff we saw at Hail Satan a couple of years ago, the squatting and the sit-ins we saw in Wisconsin a couple of years before that. Those are a couple of examples of when these people lose the opportunity to have their friends in the media craft the narrative, they engage in sort of these sophomoric mobocracy tactics. But do they actually work? Well, you know, it, I, I don't, again, in terms of actually defeating the person, no. I think what, what our group is trying to protect against is sometimes those kind of things can work to intimidate good people into either not taking the right stand mm-hmm. um, or into not being willing to serve in public uh, positions because they know they're going to be targeted. They're going to have a big, fat target on their back. The left's going to really try to attack them, and not just them in terms of their policies, but personally, their family, et cetera. So uh, what we want to do is make sure that these attacks don't succeed in doing those kind of things, because it's it's not fair to have this, these um, political ploys, these below-the-belt tactics, um, make make people not want to serve in government or make them frightened to do the right thing. Uh, that's that's really just kind of soft terrorism. It's not, it's not what we want in our government. I've got a little less than two minutes here remaining. Let's switch, switch gears here a little bit. I've written for Conservative Review why I think whom Trump appoints to fill the Scalia seat will be the barometer of his presidency, I, I believe. Let's take a look at that position. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1, I'm so nervous I bit all my fingernails off. 10, I am sleeping like a, the rock of Gibraltar at night. I have all the confidence he'll do the right thing as much as I have in gr- that gravity exists. Where are you on your confidence level that there's going to be not a John Roberts-type conservative, but a real rocked-ribbed Scalia for Scalia type of originalist appointment there? Well, unfortunately, with the with the nature of the Supreme Court, with a lifetime appointment, I, I don't think anyone can say this is. I'm confident at the level of gravity here. Um, but I, what I'm really excited about, and I am sleeping like a baby. I'm I'm so excited because if you look at the list of people that Trump put out early on in the campaign, um, I think that was that was incredibly insightful to have that list, and it really shows that he is talking to the people who have been at the, at the forefront of the conservative legal movement, the kind of people who brought us Scalia in the first place, who know that that is exactly the kind of justice we need. Um, so I know there's a lot of people working as we speak, trying to go through and, and ensure that, you know, obviously there's a lot of vetting to be done to make sure this is the person that we have the absolute most confidence in. But do I think at the end of the day that at, at the, the best um, estimate of, of someone who is going to have the right philosophy and the right courage to put that into practice, unlike um, some justices on the court, uh, I think that's what we're going to end up with. And I, so I'm, I'm very, very excited. But I know it's going to be a hard-fought battle, too. Carrie, how can our audience find out more about the Judicial Crisis Network? We are at judicialnetwork.com, and uh, we're also uh, on Twitter at Judicial Network. And then we have a new website called confirmsessions.com if you want to learn more about Senator Sessions, his life, and some of the stuff that's going on surrounding his confirmation process. Confirmsessions.com. Carrie, thank you for joining us tonight and uh, really appreciate the work you do. God bless. 
great. Have a good day. All right, we'll come back, have some reaction to what you just heard here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. The new benchmark in broadcast mediocrity, Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. So let's get some reaction to what we just heard from Carrie Severino at Judicial Crisis Network. ConfirmSessions.com is one of the projects that they're working on right away. And you'll recall that that was one of the more promising cabinet appointments that we believe Donald Trump has made. Um, and that's nominating Jeff Sessions for attorney general. And gentlemen, you heard how confident she is that, that at least that very first one, that Trump's going to keep his word. And we're going to get a Scalia for a Scalia. And... Also, she pointed out that a lot of these zany hijinks from Democrats are really just posturing for the cameras, attempts to raise money. These are clickbait, astroturf, um, you know, level of activism. It's full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So your reaction, Todd and Aaron? Uh, first of all, I, I agree that this is just posturing, this type of stuff, this sit-ins. It's just uh, it's stuff that their base will eat up quite a bit. But I also think that she's correct in a way of saying that, yes, this may serve as a way to intimidate um, other people from, um, from or discourage other people from taking a stand. That should not. This, this type of crap should not discourage you from taking a stand. If all it is is posturing, don't be afraid. Um, they're really just a bunch of uh, uh, they're just a bunch of cowards. That's that's all they are. But I think she is right. Sadly, that that does uh, serve to discourage other people. As far as the judicial nomination, uh, uh, based on everything we know about Trump, which changes day to day, so basically it's nothing. I don't share her optimism at all um, that mm. Trump will appoint somebody who's a Scalia for Scalia. Yes, it'd be nice if he kept his word, but being that just things are so mercurial all the time with Donald Trump, I would uh, I would like to believe that to be the case, but I, I just don't see that happening for sure at the moment. If anybody has been given carte blanche in this administration, you would think it would be Jeff Sessions. Unlike Mitt Romney, who that dog and pony show just for Trump to have a little fun with him. I mean, Jeff Sessions was one of the first guys to go all in on Donald Trump. So you would you would think he would have uh, the possibility of saying, Donald, we need to do this, and Donald is going to do it, 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 it just as a matter of thanks. Now, the real question is then, is Jeff Sessions going to be all in on that kind of judge appointment? Uh, philosophically, we, we think more or less. Tactically, though, our gut has been wrong a lot on the tactics of this and who, who he thinks he needs to pay off, what kind of long game he might be playing. So, yeah, I'm not optimistic either, but I, I, I like listening to her because I'd like to be more optimistic. You know what's interesting about Sessions, too, and I, I, I posted this on Twitter last night. He is one of the few people that, that really bled for Donald Trump that have been rewarded for it by Trump. Right. Handsomely, too. Yeah. So he's clearly better at this than Huckabee, Christie, Katrina Pearson, <laughs> Scotty Hughes. <laughs> That's a low bar. That, what makes you say that, Steve? That, that Katie, whatever her name was, that I lit up on CNN that one time. He's clearly better at this than all those people are. At the very least, we know that. Hour two is next.
listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Government should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 2 here tonight on the Steve Day Show on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Coming up later in this hour, this week's edition of Buy, Sell, or Hold. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. So the hand-wringing over fake news continues. But... Is this really that new of a phenomenon? Uh, Jarrett Stepman is one of the editors at the Daily Signal. That's the news arm of the Heritage Foundation. He's got a piece up talking about this, uh, saying, hey, the founders anticipated so-called fake news, and here's what they did about it. We want to welcome him to the show tonight. Jarrett, how are you? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. So is f- fake news is nothing new? And I think uh, what you said is important is, uh, you know, this is something that, that, that's happened in the past. And, of course, you know, if we want to see the world in clear light, uh, we have to study history, see what, what has happened before us, so that things don't seem new and novel, that have actually been persistent problems or persistent uh, ideas from the past. And, and what I would say, the issue of fake news, which be such a, a big issue during this news cycle, a very serious one, uh, 2016 election is that, frankly, the founding fathers and their wisdom anticipated this. It was not something new. It's something that has existed alongside, the, frankly, the liberty of the press uh, in this country's history. It's something that the founders heard for when they were debating the creation of the Constitution and this free country, which would they would hope would be a land of liberty. It's something that I realize a lot of newspaper publications have tried to present this as something that has just exploded now, but it's something that our founders anticipated and saw coming and and made provisions for in in many of its evils. What were examples of what they had to deal with in their day, Jared? So, of course, the founders well knew that journalism and media were, in in part, uh, the reason why we had a revolution to begin with. I mean, some of the great men that we know through history were men like Sam Adams and Thomas Paine, uh, these writers, these were people popularizing ideas. They understood that a free press was necessary for liberty and for the revolution. But they also understood that there were people who had sinister motivations, that there were, there were bad actors, and the founders debated this. At the Constitutional Convention, there's this, there's this great quote uh, from founder Elbert Gerry, who was discussing the impact of democracy in this country. What does that mean for this republic that has mass participation? He talked about how there were... There were peddlers and scribblers back in his home district who were intentionally trying to mislead his constituents and said that they were the, the dupes of pretended patriots who were, who were led astray. And, and he worried, as most of the founders did, about the influence of fake news or uh, bad stories on democratic institutions. And, of course, the founders, in their wisdom, 
uh, is decide to create many mediating institutions. So we don't live in a perfect democracy. We live in a country where we have things like the Electoral College, where we have a, a House and a Senate. The founders wanted to slow down the, the pace of popular change, the pace of popular ideas. So if there is a bad idea, something that's fake, something that's fake, that, that would be slowed down by the mediating institutions that were created. And that was really the founders' vision for this country. They knew that, essentially, fake news would go along with the freedom of the press. They understood this. They understood that there were going to be evil that, that came out of the system. But they also understood that a free press was vital to liberty in this country. And even when there are stories that are wrong, or even there are ones that are misleading, those have to exist uh, for liberty to survive. And so the founders, again, they created the, all these intermediary institutions that unfortunately have been in large part eroded over the last few centuries, mm-hmm. but created these to, to preserve liberty for the American people. I think you and I would both agree that when the the gatekeepers of what's now a largely impotent mainstream media who you know gave us the fake news that uh, the Russians had had hacked some electrical grid that they had to take that back right. a couple of days ago I, I think you and I b- would both stipulate Jarrett that when they say they want to clean up fake news uh, to quote uh, the the great movie uh, the Princess Bride that that word does not mean what you and I think it means I mean that means anything that challenges our uh, pre-established or predetermined preferred narrative I get that but I do think we have a truth problem on both sides. I mean, right now, an equal number of Americans believe that the Russians hacked voter machines on November 8th as believe Obama was born in Kenya. We have a rampant selection of people on both sides that are low-information, conspiratorial nitwits. And they share all this crap on social media all day long. I see it in my Facebook feeds. I see it in my own followers. And nothing you can present, No, once it gets stuck in their craw, there is no objective information whatsoever that can cause them to reconsider. I cannot tell you how many times during the last primary I had to annihilate the whole Ted Cruz is not a natural-born citizen thing. And it was an easy case to make because all the evidence was on my own side. Uh, but it didn't matter how many times I made it. There's just some people that wanted to believe Ted and Heidi Cruz are, were agents you know, planted by Goldman Sachs to infest conservatism uh, with, uh, with, with secret globalism, uh, and his dad was a heretical pastor. You, can't, you just can't get beyond some of this stuff, and that's what I'm concerned about. I really don't care what a bunch of people on CNN or other networks who want to pretend what happened in Chicago last night isn't a hate crime when we both know of the races were reversed. It would be all they're talking about right now. I am concerned, though, that there does seem to be an element of our society, right and left, that is dumb and seems very prideful about it. Well, look, I, and, and you did really hit the nail on the head. And, and frankly, I mean, the American people have felt in many times misled by what they saw as the gatekeepers to the truth. I mean, in many regards, the legacy media was seen as a gatekeeper in this country, as, and they were going to be telling us the truth. I think that trust over generations has eroded. I think a lot of people see this, well, you know, can we really believe what we see on the evening news? Unfortunately, that's come out on their side, is people might not even believe the facts that they're staring them right in the face. Big legacy media organizations have been willing to mislead the readers and to mislead the people that, that watch the news. And I think it is a huge problem when you talk who watch nightly news and there's the amazing that, that turns out through like what happened in Vermont, people say, well, 
really be the gatekeepers? I mean, and and that's really that is a major problem. To a certain extent, in our country's history, it's not unique. I mean, the 19th century, our media was very much more decentralized than it is today. Uh, it has been this country's past. Um, I, I think, hopefully, and, and this is maybe my optimistic side, is that people will begin to grasp for the truth. Even though there are a lot of lies and there are a lot, there's a lot of misinformation out there, uh, the decentralized environment will allow some, hopefully, better media organizations to rise out of that. I actually think the decentralized environment is the antidote to this. I, I think freedom is actually the antidote to this. I, I, mean, I don't believe in human nature. So I think anytime we concentrate a, a, a large amount of power into the hands of a few human beings, zany hijinks are likely to ensue. Uh, I think we actually need more freedom. I, I think we need more people to have more entities. Uh, more outlets in order to provide more options to both the dumb news, the fake news, the 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 Russian uh, Twitter bot news, uh, the the you know the liberal news, etc. I think freedom's the antidote to this. I absolutely think that freedom is the answer to the fake news problem. I think what listeners should know is that the biggest fake news story that was ever propagated in the 20th century was by the New York Times in 1931. A journalist by the name of Walter Durani. Uh, who was a Moscow bureau chief uh, for the New York Times, propagated a story about how the Soviet Union was actually a bastion of liberty. Things weren't so bad there. There was no starvation going in Ukraine. The Stalin wasn't such a bad guy. This story was so popular and so widely respected that he won the Pulitzer Prize for this. This greatly shaped American policy and moved us toward a closer relationship with the Soviet Union. Of course, the story turned out to be completely false. There was a giant famine in Ukraine that killed millions of people. But the journalist himself was a fraudster who misled the American people because he had an ideological agenda. That kind of story would have difficulty being propagated today because we have an environment where there are more people watching the watchkeepers. And I think that's an incredibly important thing, and I think it's a, it's a hopeful thing for the American people that no longer do we have to rely on a few uh, large organizations that may have an agenda for how we get our news. And I think that's, that's a hopeful message for people that worry about fake news and worry about the state of media in this country. Jared Stepman, an editor at the Daily Signal, the news arm of the Heritage Foundation. You guys do great work there, Jared. Thanks for joining us tonight, man. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Listening to Steve Dace. We don't play for a team, we fight for the truth. You're listening to Steve Dace. All right, I want to spend a few minutes with some follow-up conversation to the to the the interview we just had with Jared Stipman from uh, the Daily Signal slash Heritage Foundation. When our institutions or the culture around us fails us in a society, when something systemically goes wrong, and something will, you know, it's the old Mike Tyson line: "Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth." Right? I mean, it's one thing to light it up in practice. 
But the other side's got players who were drafted too. They got players who are on scholarship too. They're trying to win too. And they are, they are not going to react in every situation in, in, the, in the perfunctory way that you are often taught when you're in practice. Not to mention, there's less injuries in practice than there is in games, right? There's unstable elements. You don't have officials and often in practices making judgment calls that, that quickly uh, turn the momentum of a game like in a practice like you do in a game. So, I mean, things are going to go wrong when the bullets are live. That's just the way things are. So even in a healthy culture, things are going to systemically fail. A lot of you listening today probably think we were a healthier culture 50 or 60 years ago, and in many cases, the evidence points to the fact you were right. We also had separate but equal 50 or 60 years ago. Know what I'm saying? You know, so I mean, I mean, there were still things, even in a time when you thought our culture was in better shape than it is now, there were still things going systemically wrong. Our, our tendency in human nature is, and my buddy Bill Federer, the historian, wrote a book about this a few years ago called From Change to Chains. From Change to Chains. It's tough to say that. It's a tongue twister. Mm-hmm. But the, his point was he looked over the course of 6,000 years of human history and found that with very few exceptions, our tendency is the minute something goes wrong in a society is to find one person or a small group of people that seem like they have the power or the knowledge to make it work and consolidate our power uh, and, and, and farm it out to them to fix it for us. I think, frankly, both Obama eight years ago and Trump this past year both touched on that. I think they both tied into that. I think people thought Obama was going to heal us. Obama's going to lead him. I think people do think Trump's going to make America great again. This is human nature. And this is why self-government is hard. Most of us don't, don't trust ourselves or we trust ourselves in the wrong areas. We, we, we don't trust our God-given talents, but we do trust ourselves to, vi- to, to pick and choose the parts of God's law we seek to violate at any given time. You know what I'm saying? We usually zig when we should zag and zag when we should zig. And so the, I know there's this tendency to say, well, you know, then I'm only going to listen to this one source, even if it's our show, because they don't lie to me. But we're going to get things wrong, because we're human beings too. Don't... Fall for the banana in the tailpipe, guys. The antidote to what is what the systemic meltdown that is our media is to actually diversify the media that you consume so that you can improve your discernment to know that, okay, that's true, that's true, that might be true, that might be true, and then piece together yourself with your God-given intellect. What is real and what is fake news? Do not say, well, I'm going to go with these one or two or three platforms that never fail me because we all do. We will fail. We're human. Diversify your informational portfolio. Go against the grain of your thinking, which is to insulate yourself, but instead to actually, I think, Todd, the answer is to expand your horizons of what you consume. Freedom is always the antidote. Agreed. And, and here's one area where I, I disagree with the previous conversation. We don't want to believe the truth. We love believing lies. Isn't it? What is it? Romans, uh, forgive me. Romans one twenty five. I think, is if uh, if you're going the same direction that I was going to go. I was going, what is it? Romans 7, mm-hmm. chapter 7 or 8, I do the evil I do not wish to do. Mm-hmm. Is that, it, because we love a good lie. 
uh, and that and we run to it. We may say, I, in theory, I don't want to believe a lie, but practice is much different. We love the things that tickle our ears, great and small. And another thing, I, I got to say, you got another great title for your book. Dumb and really proud about it. You got to write that one next. There are a lot of Americans today who are beyond dumb, just just beyond dumb, and they're damn proud of it, Aaron. Yeah, and uh, I, I think fake news, the media, the the hapless media. I, I think as odd as it sounds, I think this has everything to do with a Romans 1 judgment that we've talked about before. I, I just mentioned in passing Romans one twenty five they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and served created things rather than the creator. The principle there, though, it's it's not the exact same thing that what the verse is talking about, but the principle is there that what Todd just said, we love lies in this culture. We love being lied to. And so by default, because... God is truth because he's the author of ultimate truth. When we exchange truth for lies, that is when our nation, or that's uh, an, another indication of when a culture has been um, turned over to judgment. And so I think, even though it sounds odd when we're talking about fake news, uh, I, I think this has everything to do with the uh, state of uh, judgment on our culture. You know, when I, I, I teach this high school worldview class, and... Um, and I'm an evangelical, so I am I am teaching it from a sola scriptura viewpoint. This is how I define sola scriptura for my for my for my students, and for people that don't know, sola scriptura is Latin for scripture alone, not only alone. And I make sure to draw that distinction. Alone does not mean only. Alone does not mean only. Alone does not mean only. So, for example, grab a big table, and at this table are um, are seats for all the epistemological paragons of a culture. In other words, knowledge. Every seat represents a field of knowledge, and and absolutely, even in a biblical worldview, science has a seat at the table. Reason has a seat at the table. Philosophy has a seat at the table. Right. But something has to sit at the head of the table to clarify everything else. Something must sit at the head in order to have order. And that is your plumb line. That is your filter by which you interpret what all the other entities that sit in the various seats are saying to you at that time. Can I open up my Bible and learn how to do open heart surgery? No. Can I open up my Bible and learn how to be a geologist? No. Can I open up my Bible and learn how to be a scholarship quarterback for my favorite college football team? No. So, it, so even though it might, it alone is the ultimate authority in my worldview, it is not the only authority. But should those other authorities seek to impose on me a standard that my ultimate standard says is wrong, I reject them. And I go with the ultimate standard. Should they seek to impose a standard on me that my ultimate standard is silent on, then I am free to pursue their standard. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's the way, that's how you form a framework. Something has to sit at the head of the table. Something has to sit there. Something determines by which we interpret and determine everything else, all other forms of knowledge going on in our culture at the time. And that's true of media consumption as well.
You're listening to Steve Dace. For such a time as this, Steve Dace. Back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Each week on the program, we like to play a little game called Buy, Sell, or Hold. Our producer, Aaron, will put forth a series of provocative statements. And then Todd and I will decide whether we're buying that, whether we're selling that, or we are allowed one and only hold each and every week if we decide it's a little too premature to make a call on that statement. Aaron, you may begin. The concept of individual mandates for health insurance will be done away with in some form in our lifetimes. Um, sell. I mean, if, 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 if we're going to keep the community rating, right, if, if, if we're going to make you buy a plan for, in order to, uh, to meet muster, if, if if the stuff that makes you it makes a guy buy a plan that that pays for pap smears and cervical exams remains in place, well, that's a that's a mandate by any other name, you know. So yeah, we're not making you we're not the the so-called individual mandate where you have to buy insurance is gone, but but it will now be it's just a mandate tied by another on the other end, which is the plans you choose to buy yourself. It's been mandated must include these forms of coverages. So it's a it's a mandate upon the individual by another name, in my view. That's why the whole thing, every last word of it, has to be repealed. I'm going to, right out of the gate, say, hold. And I, I know I'm putting myself out there. I can't use it again. But I, I, I agree with what you're saying. But on the other hand, because what we're doing now is so unsustainable, it's just a matter of if it's finally crashes while we are still alive and i don't know part of me thinks it could happen this year part of me thinks now this thing has to play out and unfortunately it's going to end up in our kids lap steve we will see another major economic downturn in the next 18 months because usually these things go in cycles of seven years and we're about due we're a little overdue um I'm going to say hold here. You're asking very good questions if we have both used our hold on the very first two questions. Let me tell you, it just goes downhill from here. <laughs> the reason I'm going to say hold here is because some of the stuff that Trump has indicated he wants to do, easing of regulations, tax cuts, things of that nature, would go a long way into staving off what you're describing. If he is for real, and I don't think we really know. I mean, on November 8th, we elected a box of chocolates for a scump. Right? Most people walked into the polls, walked into the voting booth, and they were presented with rancid porridge, the likes of which they've consumed for the last eight years, and had to make the decision, are you okay with consuming that for another four? Or here's this box of chocolates, and when you open it up, you never know what you're going to get. Some of it might be great. Some of it might be terrible. All of it might be great. 
All of it might be terrible. All but one piece might be great. All but one piece might be terrible, right? We don't know. But we do know the other thing is rancid porridge. We know what that is, what it will do to the system. We know how it tastes. We don't know what the other one is. This is how most people thought going into the polls. Well, most people that weren't slappies for either candidate. This is how most people were thinking going in. So we don't really know the stuff about tariffs and these sorts of things. We, we don't really know how serious he is about this. And will he attempt, if he is serious, because I don't think they would go anywhere in Congress. I don't. As much as, the, as much as the Republicans in Congress fear Donald Trump's Twitter account, they fear their K Street sugar daddies all the more. And the K Street sugar daddies are like, there's no way we're going to make those sneakers at Walmart go from $19.99 to $49.99. We're not doing that. Okay, we're not doing that. Because our justification for paying these cheap workers around the world is importing these cheap goods for you to buy. We're not going to get rid of that. Would he attempt to go Obama? Would he attempt to impose something unilaterally and dare Republicans to defy an executive order, for example? That we don't know. And I do think that is the sort of an unstable element, Todd, that could create an economic downturn. And I think, therefore, because we don't know the answer to that, I'm going to use my hold here. I'm going to sell. I think uh, Donald Trump has got some obvious things repealing Obamacare. Uh, and getting rid of a lot of regulation that is going to prime the pump in the next year and a half. I don't think it can crash. Maybe after that, but not for this. It's a honeymoon period. I hope you're right. If if, But I think for you to be right, it comes down to how serious is he about these tariff schemes. Because you, you, you give people confiscatory tax rates on top of a tariff scheme, and that's that's how you stifle an economy right there. You're listening to Steve Dace. For truth, justice, and the way America should be, The Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Let's continue on with some buy, sell, or hold. And, Todd, you and I have to go on the record now. We, we both went out in the very first segment. We've already used our individual holds. So now we've got to take a stand. Aaron, go ahead. So you heard about the American College of Pediatricians uh, calling out National Geographic's decision to put a 9-year-old on their January cover who identifies as a transgender well, the, uh, as I said, the American College of Pediatricians actually spoke out against that. My posit uh, for you, even uh, a growing number of the nation's doctors will voice their concern about gender-bending ideology this year. Yes. I think the answer to that question is yes. I do. I think that there are, and, and I, I think the presence of Trump is an aid here, not because I think he's with us on these issues or he's some kind of culture warrior, but the idea that someone got elected by violating um, the, uh, the the politically correct dogma of the day, and not just violating it, I mean, he violated those who wield it. Right? I mean, he just soiled them. All right, so I, I think that's going to give more people a gumption who agree with us than we probably even realize in some of these in some of these venues, and maybe not even for the reasons that you and I think the way we do on these things. Uh, but I think you're going to see more challenging of the prevailing winds of political correctness. 
I think you'll see less silence. I, I think you will see more people uh, in non-traditional enclaves feel emboldened to challenge some of these uh, dogmas, to be more contrarian, because I think they will see there's an environment that would allow for it. So I, I'm going to buy on this. I do. I, I, in fact, I, I think that this argument has done a lot of damage. Well, maybe not a lot. Let me rephrase that. I think they are. I think the Rainbow Jihad is doing damage to their cause by evolving to this issue. That they were winning on the issue of why can't two people who love each other just spend be together? What does it matter who you love? They were winning on that issue. When we start seeing though that 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 they're admitting to us, Todd, the that that it's not about that stereotype. There, there's a morality, a new a new ethos that they want to impose on us as a people. And it includes, you know, you and I have daughters. Everybody has, a lot of our daughters had tomboy phases. I don't know, well, Zoe will never have a tomboy phase. It, it, Zoe's phase is how much glitter, more glitter, some glitter phase. That That's, you know, uh, but, you know, Anna had a tomboy phase. That's perfectly natural. Tomboy phases now become my child thinks they're a dude, so let me put, him in, let me put her in, uh, you know, a singlet, and teach her to wrestle, okay? Uh, I, I think when we start seeing stuff like that, when they, when they take the result of where they really want to take us beyond their propaganda to its, its ultimate conclusion, I think they are creating a repellent against their own belief system. From your lips to God's ears, but I'm going to sell. Because how really is this different than the abortion issue? Uh, I don't know what percentage, and I'm sure those stats have been done, doctors are pro-life versus pro-choice. But no matter how many are pro-life, you wouldn't really know it with most of them because I think they don't want to damage their reputation or their client, the, the perception of their clientele by speaking out too much. I don't know how this is. Certainly, and Aaron's time frame is salient to me here. He said in the next year. I, I just don't think that they're going to have the gumption to stay here and no further because they haven't on abortion. Who would have been more help other than uh, the faith community on this than doctors? And they've been the of uh, the problem in many respects, not the solution. Being that Hollywood is run by progressives, even with all the huge movies coming out in twenty seven uh, coming out this year, twenty seventeen will be a disappointment at the theaters. I'm going to sell on that. I think twenty seventeen will set the box office record uh, for for most revenue. Now, you have to put a caveat on that because these are not adjusted inflation numbers, right? I mean, if if you were to adjust for inflation on, um, you know, the, the greatest movies of all time. Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I mean, when, when people went and saw Gone with the Wind, you know, a movie ticket was a dime. Mm-hmm. All right, it wasn't eight bucks, you know, like it is now. So I, I think that, I mean, if you adjust for inflation, Gone with the Wind's the biggest movie of all time. $1.7 billion. The original Star Wars, $1.5 billion is number two. The Sound of Music, E.T., and the first contemporary film, Titanic, is number five. I mean, most people believe Titanic, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and, um, uh, and, and Avatar are the biggest movies of all time because we don't adjust these lists for inflation. We don't put what these movies would have made in their day and age in 2016 dollars. I mean, look at the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. That's number six on the list. Because with what movies cost at that time, it was one point one, it's a $1.1 billion movie, The Exorcist. Is number nine on the list. It's a $941 million domestic movie. So without factoring in the adjustment for inflation, 
Todd, I think 2017, when you look at what is on the horizon in terms of brands, I think you'll see an all-time record set at the box office this year. I agree. The The draw is so compelling that even if each and every one of these movies doesn't even come close to meeting high expectations, everybody's going to want to see them nonetheless. It's almost baked into the cake that this is going to be challenging that mark. This upcoming college football national championship will have even greater ratings than last year's. I will buy on that, too. I do. I think the hype will be, I think the hype will be huge. Because we have our first ever national championship rematch, the game these two teams put on uh, last year, one of the all-time greats, people forget what Alabama had to do to win that game last year. Uh, they needed a tight end to win the game by four points. They needed to recover an onside kick. They needed a tight end to have 200 yards receiving, and they needed to return a kickoff or a touchdown. You know how often you do any of those things in a game, let alone all three? You might live your whole life and not see a tight end get 200 yards receiving. I mean, onside kicks work maybe 10% of the time at the most, right? I mean, there's a lot of good football teams that didn't return any kickoffs for touchdowns in a, in a whole season. This is mighty Alabama we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, Alabama needed to pull off that trifecta right there. They needed to pull that off last year to win the game by four points. So I, I think given that and how highly ranked these teams have been all year, Todd, and the hype going in, I think, yeah, I think the ratings for this will blow away. Well, well, maybe not blow away, but I think they will surpass what we had last year. I'm selling for the same reasons you're talking about. Uh, in terms of the rematch, I think that's not going to be compelling to your average uh, viewer. And I think we just have done this bowl thing so wrong. People are going to be totally on pro football and say, I don't need to watch this one. Yeah, I think you're going to be wrong on that one. I'm confident you're going to be wrong on that one. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. It's not about the next election. It's about the next generation. Steve Dace. All right, hey, quickly, since I brought this up, in case you're curious... I have in front of me, these are the all-time most successful movies adjusted by, or adjusted for inflation. Should we do like the top 20 maybe? Sure. Okay. Number 20, The Sting. Robert Redford, Paul Newman. Scott Joplin's Ragtime with the theme. Great movie. Number 19 is The Lion King. Number 18, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Which I guarantee is the worst movie among those in the top 20. Maybe among those in the top 100 all time. It's a dreadful movie. And when you go back and watch it now, how far much how much better CGI and stuff is now? It's I, like you're watching I, a video game knockoff of a movie. I remember watching that movie and I don't have as bad as memories as as uh, people who are Star Wars fans, but I remember watching that movie and there there isn't there a scene where they're like feeding each other an apple or something like that. That's the second one. Is that That's the, the second, second one? one? That was yeah. terrible CGI, too. Number 17, I, I mentioned Jurassic Park. Number 16, Return of the Jedi. Avatar, which when it left theaters a few years ago was listed the most successful movie of all time. When you adjust for inflation, it's number 15. Is one of the sequels this year, or is that not yet? It's not yet. Not yet. They, they, those have been delayed two years now, so who knows? Charlton Heston's second movie to make this list is number 14, Ben-Hur. The Empire Strikes Back is number 13. 
101 Dalmatians is number 12. Star Wars The Force Awakens, when it left theaters last year, was considered the number one movie of all time. It's actually 11th. Number 10, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Number 9, The Exorcist. This one may surprise you. Number 8, Dr. Zhivago. Is number 8 all time. Number 7 is Jaws. Number 6, The Ten Commandments. Number 5, Titanic. Number 4, E.T. So those are two of the top seven movies of all time, are Steven Spielberg. Number three, The Sound of Music, which I've never seen. You've never seen The Sound of Music? And I'm, I'm going to do whatever I can in my power to keep it that way. Number two, Star Wars. And number one is Gone with the Wind. Ever seen Gone with the Wind? A million times. It's a great movie. See, and I, that's why I think you'd like uh, Sound of Music for a lot of the same reasons, the, the historical touchstones. Mm-hmm. It's good. The only film in the top 20 I've not seen. Um, Well, there's two. I haven't seen The Sound of Music, and I haven't seen Dr. Zhivago. I've seen all the other ones. Some of the movies just outside the top 20, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is number 21. The Graduate is number 22. Fantasia's 23. So you start thinking about this now. With Star Wars being Disney, there's a lot of Disney in these all-time greatest films. Um, Jurassic World is 24, The Godfather, 25, Forrest Gump, 26, Mary Poppins, 27, Grease, 28, The Avengers, 29. Good grief, there's a lot of movies that uh, that I've never seen in there. A lot of them I have, but a lot that I haven't. He is your millennial stereotype America. Yes. Hour 3 is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 3 here tonight on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Later on in this hour, with Obama's head, Obamacare's head on the chopping block, we're going to separate fact from fiction here. Uh, and, and we're going to do so with somebody whose livelihood depends on knowing what this legislation does and does not do. That's coming up here at the bottom of the hour. But first, let's get to three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. It is three questions. The time of uh, night when our producer Aaron gets to ask us any three things about any three things. No topic is off limits. Provided he's willing to answer the same questions himself. Aaron. You may fire when ready. Uh, Thank you, Steve. Question one, if you could live a day in the life of any impactful American in this country's history, in their time, in their position of power or influence or lack thereof, literally in their shoes, who would you live a day in the life of? 
Donald Trump right now. Really? Yeah, right now. Because whatever is passed is prologue. And there's a lot of injustices you'd like to go back and to undo, but you don't know what the butterfly effect of that is, right? You don't know what the you don't know what the boomerang of that is, and maybe I watched too much sci-fi uh, while I was on Christmas vacation. The other night I was watching uh, the episode of Star Trek Voyager where Q makes his debut, right? So maybe I watched too much sci-fi while on uh, Christmas vacation, guys, but I think we should be very hesitant about going back in time and stopping certain things because we don't know what the reverberations of that will be going forward. Doesn't mean I would, you know, ixnay it totally. I'm just saying I think we should be very hesitant. And I completely agree. If I may clarify something, the spirit of the question is uh, just what would you like to see through another person's eyes? But, but I would like to see. The reason I choose Donald Trump right now is because of the moment in history he is about to step into. And I would like to see through his eyes the true capability of the team that is around him what they really tell him on a daily basis, what he's really willing to listen to, what is what is live and what is Memorex, what is for shizzle and what is Shobine, uh, what is uh, Twitter posturing and what is serious conversation. See, those are the things that we don't know the answer to. And, and, and that's why I would choose him, Todd. I'm sorting through the politicians in my mind, and I pause at every one because when John Adams said that we study war so our sons can study politics so uh, their sons can study arts, it's because wanting to live, would I want to see the world and live in the shoes of Abraham Lincoln? That is so incredibly daunting. So I am going to humbly submit uh, something outside of the political realm where it doesn't quite seem so cosmic, Jackie Robinson. Because he did an incredible amount, but he did it while playing baseball. And he went from the booze and being called the awful names and getting cleated and run over to having photo ops taken with some white players who said, you know, enough is enough. And they put their armor on it. And and the feeling in those moments must have been incredible. Were you at, at the center of that and you felt the tide turning? Todd, that was a clear attempt to find something involving Major League Baseball that by choosing it as your pursuit would not make you look shallow and immature. Can we just can we just admit to that? I was waiting for him to go to instant replay again, but you know. Well, you should be thankful that I didn't do that yes. and just move on. Yeah, I mean you chose a good one, but that's that was really what was happening there, America. <laughs> yes, Aaron. <laughs> uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt putting aside all of the ideology, but to step into his shoes the day after Pearl Harbor or the day of Pearl Harbor for that um, for that matter. And what was it like? What must it have been like? to look at what he was facing, to make the decisions that he was about to make or that he was going to have to make, what that must that have been like? I, I, again, I'm putting aside all the worldview, all the issues and things like that, but what must it be like to have been attacked um, in such a way and knowing what was coming? That that would be something else, I think, to, uh, to experience. Uh, question two, narrow it down. What are the top three movies you're looking forward to seeing in 2017? In no uncertain order, I would say Justice League. I mean, just to see them all on the screen together, the heroes from my childhood, a kid that used to get up when, you know, depending on where we lived in the country, Super Friends was on once a week and sometimes at 6 a.m. on a Saturday if we lived in California. So to make sure that I rearranged my sleep patterns on Friday night to get up on Saturday morning to watch those shows, 
and now to see them all on the screen live action so that's on the list um of course star wars episode uh, eight is an automatic uh, on, on the list for me and then you know i could go with uh, I, I could go with numerous movies that i could make a case for to make myself though sound less fanboy and shallow I will go off the grid a little bit, and I'm going to choose Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk as my third. One, because I love Christopher Nolan. He's one of the best filmmakers of our age. Two, because this was one of the most underrated moments in the 20th century. In fact, Western civilization was at the brink of annihilation at this moment there. You know, we just—I just talked a few minutes ago about why I would choose to be in, in to see the world through Trump's eyes, if I could choose anybody, to see if if the team he has around him, and himself are really ready for what's to come. Well, keep in mind, Winston Churchill had only been prime minister for days before they 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 show up, and they tell him, "Hey, we're literally up a creek." I mean, like literally up a creek, except it's a channel. And we're done. We're pinned in. This thing's over. Forget about trying to get the Americans into this thing. It's over before they ever get in. So learn your German. I I think what he will do with that, especially because Nolan has a tendency, even if it's unintentional, to speak some uncomfortable truths of what's happening in today's culture into his movies. And so I, I, I am fascinated to see what he will do with that source material. But this is such a strong year for films, I, I could have chosen 10 or 15 other movies to put in that third spot. Yeah, to keep us plugging along, I, I don't know that I could choose better. But based on one trailer that's out right now, I can't wait to see this movie. Uh, the final uh, X-Men involving Wolverine called Logan. That trailer, have you seen it, Steve? I have, yeah. It is... You can't do better with an initial trailer to give a feel. You don't know a ton of the plot, but I, I can't wait to see that movie based on that. Tra- and I don't know the source, Old Man Logan. I haven't read it. I'm sure you have, but I'm I'm all in. Uh, the Star Wars, the eighth uh, Star Wars movie, or episode eight, I should say. Uh, that's one. Uh, the Lego Batman movie, because apparently I'm five. And uh, I yeah, that see... could have made my list because that that is going to be a fantastic yeah. movie. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy two. That's so stuff. well, that that could have made my list as well. Uh, question three: What's the most immature prank you've ever pulled on someone? Um, <laughs> I can start if you'd like me. Go ahead. Uh, back in college, so it wasn't that long ago, but it was it was early on in college. The job that I worked, I had roof access to one of the buildings. I was working there one summer, and all the kids came back from uh, summer vacation, and I saw a couple of lovebirds um, in the uh, grass in front of this building, so I decided to play a prank on them by getting, like, a bucket full of water and dumping it on them. Turns out uh, the dude was really, really, like, one of the nicest guys on campus, and that's, like, the last major prank I've ever pulled. There are, uh, there's a lot of things I could choose. Several of which I probably shouldn't share on the radio. The audience can't see your smile <laughs> yes, right now when you I mean, say that. This is, you know, I, I told you before some things. You asked a question about something dumb we did in our youth, and I said I never came close to that. I remember what it was now. This area, however, I overindulged growing up. All right, and so there are several things I, I probably can't tell these stories on the air. I will share one. I used to love to find guys in the phone book when I was growing up in Michigan. Used to love to find guys in the phone book named Tito Jackson. 
<laughs> and there's hey, Michigan's a very racially diverse state. There's a lot of guys named Tito Jackson in Michigan. All right. And I used to call them up and prank them about, you know, why they ruined the family, why they ruined the band. Can you believe Latoya is even better than you? And I would just, I, I mean, I must have called every Tito Jackson in uh, the, the phone book uh, in the, the, for Michigan, West Michigan and all surrounding communities. I thought it was funny. Looking back on it, it's pretty dumb and immature. Elementary school, total loser move, supposed to do this trust issue with closing your eyes and somebody leading around the hallways, and I let him right into the principal's office. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's very good. The nightly buzz is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. From the front lines of the battle for liberty, the Steve Day Show. And now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. See, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of this culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. And this is the Nightly Buzz. We go back, take a look at some of the headlines we missed from earlier in the evening. Our producer Aaron has those headlines, and we've got the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. Police say formal charges are expected to be filed against four suspects in connection with a half-hour video which exploded on social media that appears to show at least one black man torturing and taunting a white man with special needs and making disparaging remarks about President-elect Donald Trump. The video was initially posted on Facebook Live under the account of someone named Brittany Herring and spread quickly via Twitter and under the hashtag BLM kidnapping, Black Lives Matter kidnapping. Police have since said that Black Lives Matter does not appear to have any connection to the video. This is, I I know that this is being compared to Dylan Roof and what he did in South Carolina was that last year. Two years ago. Two years ago. And and a lot of people are sort of saying this is the inverse of that, the yin to that yang. You're wrong. It's the same thing as that. It's the same thing. It comes from the same root. Darkened, darkened human souls. Drunk on their own depravity. Who have exchanged the truth for a lie. This is not, I I would urge our audience, do not see this. You should see this in a racial context, because it is driven by that. But not in the context of, see, this works the other way around too. That's, That's a canard. Don't go for that. Don't see this politically. See this transcendently. Because to see it politically, I think you're actually going to play into the hands of the very people that you want to defeat. Because they, that, that is the morality, that is the worldview that they want posited. What they don't want posited is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Who is the sage of this age? Who would dare stand against God? That in those days Israel had no king, so everyone did what was wise or right in their own eyes. In other words, what the, what the side that you want to defeat does not want to recognize is the transcendent 
existence of good and evil. Now, I know what many of you mean when you point out the racial aspect of this working the other way. You want to make the case, and the right one, you're trying to make the case that, see, racism isn't inherent to one particular race. There's no such thing as white privilege or heteronormativity. It's the human condition. But if you, I'm just telling you, take my advice as someone who communicates and messages for a living. If you brand this that way up front, you will play into their hands. And it will come down to whose side historically has shown to be the most privileged, has shown to be the most racist. You can't win that argument. There is no winner. You can't win. You can't win an argument of a grievance to classes. You can't win that argument. So don't have it. Todd, the argument we have to have is, what causes and creates Dylan Roofs and vile people like those we saw last night on Facebook Live? What is it about the human condition in a society as enlightened and as educated as our own that can still produce such fiends? How is this possible? That is the conversation we want to have. Pardon the expression, we don't want to take part in a tit-for-tat racial conversation. We want to trump that conversation. Yeah, there is a great unraveling going on, if I may come at uh, it a different way. Uh, When we talked about um, Islam and Marie Harf said if there was only a jobs program, well, take this action here. Black America, poor America, how many jobs programs, how much big government, how many attempts has there been to fix this? I'm interested to see, and I haven't uh, heard a lot lately, a reaction on the left to this. But will there be excuse-making, or will they just be quiet and hope this thing goes away? Because what you're talking about is exactly right. You can make all the excuses, talk about all the secular uh, inner-city answers to things like this. No, this is a spiritual problem yes. at its root. Yes, yes. There, there, there isn't a new sociology. There isn't... Uh, there isn't an anti-political correctness or pro-political correctness bent that is the salve or antidote for this. There, there is no human construct. There's no limited government or expansive government that can answer what is at the core of the human soul that makes this possible, even in an age as advanced and a culture as enlightened and educated as our own. This and is angels versus demons. That's exactly right, and that's the conversation that you have to have. Well said. Next story. A special House panel has concluded after a year-long investigation that Planned Parenthood affiliates profited by transferring parts of aborted babies to outside organizations in violation of law. A 418-page report report released uh, this week by the House Selective Investigative Panel on Infant Lives also found that other organizations involved in the transfer of fetal tissue broke federal or state law. In one case... A National Planned Parenthood executive interviewed by staff investigators for the House panel said, It doesn't bother me that one vendor, Stem Express, paid Planned Parenthood $55 for an aborted baby's intact brain and then sold it to a customer for more than $3,000. One of the reasons why I said I would take a culture warrior at AG over five you know, system-churning-out shills at numerous other positions is because of stories like this. The power of the Justice Department, if properly wielded by the likes of Jeff Sessions, will provide you some much-needed clarity once and for all on, on issues like this. 
the ability to cause people to have their day in court, to face consequences for their actions. That is the power that that office holds. Let's pray that Attorney General Sessions will wield it in a few weeks once he takes that post. This is a Sean Connery in the Untouchables moment in his last dying breath. He grabs Elliot Ness by the collar and says, What are you prepared exactly. to do? Exactly. That's exactly right. A last story, Evangelist Franklin Graham believes God possibly allowed Donald Trump to win the 2016 presidential election <sighs> to help protect America. He told Religion News Service his take on the matter after it was announced that Graham will take part in the January 20th inauguration. He said, quote, I think maybe God has allowed Donald Trump to win this election to protect this nation for the next few years by giving maybe an opportunity to have some good judges. Here, here's the thing. I, I, I think that this is potentially true. Okay? My, my, my concern with this, though, is not this assertion. Do I think it is possible that, that, especially when you look at the way Trump's victory came about, you couldn't recreate it in a political science laboratory if you tried? We've talked about this, right? Mm-hmm. It, this wasn't a shot in the dark. This was betting it all on black and it worked. Okay, You couldn't do this again if you wanted to. So do I think it is possible that God was merciful in saying, I will give you a reprieve from the statism you're suffering underneath to show me that you have learned your lesson? Do I think that's possible? Sure I do. But my concern is when we tell the culture only that God is helping us or doing good things for us when it seems to be the things that we want. If Hillary Clinton was about to become president, God wouldn't love us any less. The test of faith is not, do I acknowledge God when he gives me what I want, but do I acknowledge God when he doesn't? You're listening to Steve Dace. The Sleeping Giants Alarm Clock, Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So, the incoming administration has let it be known that repealing Obamacare, or at least fake repealing Obamacare, that's being debated as we speak, but, but some variation of repealing of Obamacare is its top priority. The Democrats have uh, tried to respond. They are coming out with the branding, Make America Sick Again. I'm not exactly sure... Which Democrat consultant told them to go out there and do a press avail, guys, surrounded by a banner that said, Make America Sick Again, coming off an election you just lost? But this is not the branding that you are looking for, okay? I mean, that is, that's the worst picture on Capitol Hill since Rubio Schumer three years ago. Can you okay? say Jimmy Carter malaise? Yeah, you don't. Don't ever stand up for a photo op behind a, in front of a sign that says "Make America Sick Again." All right, that's that. You don't want to send that kind of message to people. Nonetheless, the debate over Obamacare is raging. My good friend Jake Veely is here because he works for a living, needing to know what things like Obamacare really do and really don't do. And we want to welcome him back to the show. Jake, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Remind our audience, it's been a while since we've had you on. Remind our audience, I mean, you consult for companies, their wellness plans, right? One of the things you do is to make sure they are compliant with regulations and things of that nature. Do I have that right? Yeah. I I own a firm that that does consulting across the board and population health work. We also get involved in the regulatory structures around 
uh, not just how healthcare is delivered, but how it's funded. So you have to know beyond the political spin. You have to know in the, uh, the in the real world, you your clients face the consequences of of this kind of legislation outside of the spin from both sides. Right. They've spent billions of dollars since 2010 trying to become compliant related to all the regulatory structures around Obamacare. Let me get a big picture question first before we look at some of the claims surrounding Obamacare. Is there enthusiasm, excitement, trepidation, or disagreement with the notion of even partially repealing this? I think even most of the clients that I work with are all supportive of the repeal of Obamacare, but there's trepidation as to what it's going to look like and how it actually is going to unfold. Because many of these companies spent millions and billions of to get dollars themselves compliant to get themselves it. compliant. Right. So uh, just undoing it, which, you know, the whole thing is at the end of the day, is it really going to end up being worth it to, to take all this work that we did and flush it down the drain and start over? Um, most of them, when we're sitting around the dinner table after our, our work that day, are saying, yeah, they think it eventually is is going to be worth it because we're heading in a direction so fast, so unsustainable right now that unless we hit the brakes, jump out, and let the car fly over uh, the cliff, we're gonna we're gonna be flying over the cliff with it. Are your uh, would would your clients support uh, one of the top members of Trump's transition team today? Congressman Collins said that whatever form repeal takes, it won't actually take effect till 2019. Because people have already purchased their 2017 plans back in October. They're already working on lining people up for 2018. So the cynic in me says, well, they want to wait till after the midterm elections of 2018 in case it goes wrong. But there are some logistical reasons there, right, Why, where you would give businesses like the ones you work with, you would give them a 16-month head start on here's how things are going to change after you spent two to three years getting yourselves ready for the changes. Yeah, at least that amount of time. I mean, there's the, – the, this is – this is truly turning the Titanic, and and it's it's such a massive undertaking, and the the regulations spread through every aspect of healthcare funding. Give us an example of regulations your clients put up with that maybe our average listener just yeah. it can't even identify. Yeah, with. so I I work with because we hear about making guys pay for Pap smears and stuff like that, but it's sure. got to go beyond that, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I work with a carrier, um, an insurance company out of Kansas City, that. Um, had to completely drop an entire part of their business. And this is a family-owned business for 50 years and had to create an entirely new insurance structure around that client base because Obamacare turned that insurance product that they were selling into an illegal product, which this happened to all the carriers around the country, so this isn't uncommon uh, but that's a, a good example. They had to take a huge part of their revenue that of this business that they had in their family forever, and and create an entirely new business to make everything continue to go forward, to continue to employ their 150 employees, and and to and to try to get people covered again. So it it was it was huge. So you're talking wholesale change there. Absolutely, 100. percent All right, so. Has this done some of the things, its proponents, there are proponents of it, has it done some of the things that they are claiming? Are we really looking at a full repeal? We're going to get answers to those questions here next. You're listening to Steve Dace. 
Hey there, ruling class. Meet your worst nightmare. I'm having these dreams. I'm scared. Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. My buddy Jake Veely is here with us, and he works in the healthcare industry. One of the things he does is consulting with companies all over the country on their wellness programs, their insurance programs, including being Obamacare compliant. So when you remove all the political spin we hear from our side and theirs on this, he actually has to deal with the real numbers, the real regulations, and the real-world consequences of this legislation, both good and bad. We talked about the big picture of this. Let, let's look at some of the details, Chick. Is it true that Obamacare brought health insurance or health care to 20 million new Americans? If you want to go based on surveys and not on actual enrollment data from the insurance carriers, you could still debate that that number is highly inflated. Um, we are at a point right now to where none of the information that we have about Obamacare coverage even gets close to that number when we're looking at what is actually coming out of United Healthcare, Coventry. Give us blues. an example. What is not even close to 20 million? Uh, like 16 million, 10 million? So 14, or, or let's see, uh, um, 11.7 million or 11.8 million, roughly, somewhere in there, of, of these. 20, you know, prospective 20 million people that were covered were actually covered by Medicare. Okay, so... You mean Medicaid? Medicaid, yes, sorry. that's okay. Um, so right off the bat, there's a huge chunk of people that are getting health insurance that is being funded fully by the government. Mm-hmm. They're, they're making no payments. And this is be like if you live in a state like Ohio where the Republican governor they're expanded Medicaid yep. to try and compensate for what Obamacare regulated and demanded, et cetera. That's right. So... Um, there were also about 2.3 million people who were covered. Can I clarify that point for just sure. so essentially yeah. what Obama for the Obamacare people to say they they insured this many people. It's a little bit like saying I started a fire and I give my own fire department credit for how many fires they put out that I started, right? That's correct. So they're taking credit for how many people had to be flooded into Medicaid because of what they did to destabilize the pre-existing system. Yeah, it's it's also important to mention that these people weren't without coverage prior to Obamacare. They aren't just newly picked up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of these people came out of state programs that were made illegal by the very passing of Obamacare and some of the regulatory structures within the law. So the the, another chunk of the people, 2.3 million of them roughly, were the 19 to 26-year-olds who were able to go back on their parents' plans uh, versus going and getting insurance or not having it, you know, depending on on what they would have been doing. Again, a group of people who were not necessarily paying any premiums in. So none of these are and they're are still not paying premiums because they're on correct. their parents' insurance. That's absolutely correct. So the actual net increase of insureds, if you if you take out the people who were forced off of their employers plan because their employer dropped a plan and were forced back into the market. I don't call that a net gain mm-hmm. in insurance because they were insured before. They, they are estimating right now from the actual carrier data that about 2.3 million people who were not covered before, who truly were not covered, actually gained coverage through the marketplaces that Obamacare started. Seems like one hell of a mess to make. It's a for huge For an mess. infinitesimal amount of people in the grand scheme of things. And I think we also need to make sure we clarify we're talking health insurance, not health care. 
Anybody can go to an ER at any point in time, cannot be turned away. So there's this notion that people didn't have health care. Health care is different than health insurance. And those terms have gotten conflated quite a bit here in the last few years. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's one of the things that I constantly talk about in you know my presentations and conferences and things is um, we, we really need to start having more of a conversation around what health care is going to look like in the next five, ten years, not necessarily just what the funding mechanisms around healthcare is. Because it, it's this isn't popular to say necessarily on this forum, but healthcare was a mess before Obamacare. I mean, costs were going up like crazy. Obamacare just exacerbated an existing problem. Right. The the things that that the are HMO going on now. the HMO jokes and laments of ten years ago are now. We just substituted HMO for Obamacare now, right, pretty much. Yep, absolutely. So so we're not dealing with an unfamiliar problem here. I, I think the last... You're tw- dealing with an exacerbated one. Correct. We're, we're dealing with something that we knew was coming 20 years ago. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that Obama really thought, or any of his staffers who wrote this law, thought that it was going to fix anything. Um, I, I think there was probably an agenda behind it that that maybe I think, I think more the towards goal of it all was, was to destate show that the system can't be sustained and they, and you'd have to go to a single. They were trying to cloward pivot the situation. That's right. what I think. Yeah, I, I would I would have to agree with that because there's no there's no realm of, of smart sense smart people that I can make smart people even if they disagreed with you and I's ideology wouldn't have done it the way they did it. Correct. That's yep. what makes you come to the conclusion that they did it wrong on purpose. Yeah, because even if you don't understand how insurance works, it's pretty easy to say, if I'm going to throw a whole bunch more features on this car, it's probably going to cost more. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't yes. know, I don't know what world any anyone else lives in, but when you when you order up on a menu, when you when you buy more features on a car, um, you, you know, when you go into a house and you want an extra thing here and an extra thing there, there's normally a cost associated to that. Uh, if you buy an insurance policy and you want extra coverage. What you're describing is why I've I've always believed they went ahead and made the, quote, compromise to get rid of the public option that was in this originally. Because the one way that this would work to at least somewhat be solvent is if there was a public option. That's correct. All right? The, but I think they, they went ahead and agreed, based on Republican complaints, to get rid of it, knowing that without a public option, there was no chance for this thing to be solvent in the hopes that it would crash the system and cause people to go flooding towards a single payer. Yeah. I mean, I mean the bottom line is this, this system, the, the worst parts of this system were actually being very well managed before this law was passed. And they were being very well managed at the state level. And people who really needed it, people who were really sick and who were really poor and are women and children were being taken care of, and they had options. Those options went away when Obamacare was signed. Those people got put into the exact same categories as th- those of us who may be uh, young, not consuming health care that much, uh, paying uh, our own premiums and things like that. And, and what happened is is just the water uh, the waters rose and all ships rose with it, and, and the premiums came up, and the consumption of health care went way up, and for the people who just needed coverage... The premiums got so expensive. All right, here's what I want to do. We come back and wrap up the show in a moment. I, I, we're going to have a few minutes. I want you to pretend you're, we're one of your clients and analyze for us in, in, in as much anticipation as you can what the replacement's going to look like. Sure. Let's do that here when we return. You're listening to Steve Dace.
the power of principles. Steve Dace. All right, back here to wrap it up tonight on the Steve Day Show with my friend Jake Veely. His his firm, by the way, if, if you are a business and you like what you're hearing, if you're looking for this kind of expertise, National Integrative Health is Jake's company where he works. National Integrative Health, and you can visit their website, nationalintegrativehealth.com, nationalintegrativehealth.com. All right, so pretend we're one of the companies you're representing. And and you're analyzing based on the, the 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 political headwinds, but also what is feasible given the market situation. What do you think a a repeal replacement of Obamacare will ultimately look like? I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a return to a lot of the state programs that existed before. Like for example, in our home state of Iowa, we have the Hawkeye program for yep. the uninsured that can't afford it, yeah. which is a state-run public option, right? Yeah, we also had a, a, a high-risk pool right. that was managed by a board of various different uh, business people and, and stakeholders within the insurance industry. It was managed very well and, and was providing people with uh, great coverage for, for their situation. They were very high utilizers of the system. They had an arrangement with Blue Cross Blue Shield here in Iowa, and Blue Cross Blue Shield was given some tax credits um, for their involvement because the program was a loser and they knew that. So they, they washed everything out. I, th- I think you're going to see a return to that. I, I would say the current administration, based on everything they've said, like again, like you said, we don't know exactly what will, what will take place, but based on what we've heard, I think they're going to push a lot of power back to the states. I think the same thing's going to happen with Medicaid. As we talked about earlier, there was an incredible expansion of Medicaid benefits. Um, a lot of the states that were involved in that, they opted in. And I think they're, they're going to be given the opportunity to, to opt back out and get out of the, the federal Medicaid program. I think a lot of the federal subsidies behind the Medicaid program expansion are going to go away. I do th- think those will be cut. Um, Which would further incentivize states to come up with their own correct. program. That's right. correct. And their own funding for it, mm-hmm. which, they've, which they did before. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the federal government will kick in money on that, but it will be nothing like it is right now. The, uh, the, the two things that I think are going to stay I think pre-existing coverage uh, or coverage for pre-existing conditions is going to stay. Politically, we can argue them, we can argue financially, morally, but politically, eliminating those right now is you'd have a better chance of repealing Social Security, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's nothing popular about saying, yeah, if someone's sick, they're not going to be able to get coverage. Right. Uh, it's just, it's hard to say that. Now, whether that will be done at the state level or whether it will be done on the private market, I don't know. I can live with the sure. pre-existing conditions, understanding the political reality. To me, what has to go is the group rating, the community rating. Community rating's gone. That stuff's got to go. Community Put rating's gone. But more emphasis gone, on sure. people's individual health. Stop forcing guys to pay for pap smears and, and all that. That that stuff's got to go. Is yep. that going to go, do you think? It, it's going to go, and you're going to see the lifetime maximum. Uh, basically, the amount of someone can spend on one insurance plan per year, that's going to go away, too. Jake, this was really good. I mean, this was the best interview on this subject that I have seen or read in the last few weeks. So thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Again, nationalintegrativehealth.com is his website, John 317. You're listening to Steve Dace.